0: Over a hundred years ago, Alexis de Tocqueville was commissioned by France to do a study, sociologically and historically, of what was the genius of America's success. If you remember any of the history, France admired America a great deal. That's one of the reasons we have the Statue of Liberty. But they were kind of surprised by the results. Alexis de Tocqueville wrote extensively on the subject and showed that really the the basis for the success of the institutions in America lay in the character and the religion of America. And he was kind of surprised himself, but certainly uh, France was not too pleased with this because the whole basis for their revolution and their institutions was an atheistical one. But Alexis de Tocqueville wrote this. He said, Not until I went into the churches... And heard her pulpits flame with righteousness, did I understand the greatness of her power? And I have about three historical studies that have said exactly the same thing. And so it's not enough to uh, look at the attacks that Satan has brought against God's rule in politics. We looked at that last week. But I think even more fundamental is understanding the attacks against God's theocratic rule in the church. Now, of course, verse 2 indicates, you know, whether people acknowledge it or not, God continues to rule. So we're not talking about the rule itself, but we're talking about the acknowledgement of that rule coming under attack. And it's certainly been under attack in our day. If Satan can neutralize the church, if he can keep the church from being salt and light, he will be a long ways toward bringing our nation under judgment. And so this is one of his key strategies. He hates God's rule with a passion wherever it might be manifested, in family, state, or in the church. And uh, he will play every dirty trick in the book to try to get Christians or others to resist God's rule. <clears throat> and uh, he knows if he can get Christians to resist that rule that... uh uh, he will be a long ways toward bringing God's judgment. That's what he wants. He wants to postpone the inevitable victory that Christ will bring about and especially postpone our enjoyment of Christ's victory and our entering into that. And so the the church is really key. I don't know how many of you were uh, listening to Marlon Maddox this past Wednesday. I happened to be in the car traveling somewhere. <clears throat> but he had a, an individual who's written a book uh filled with statistics of Christianity around the world. And uh, one of the things that they were indicating was that there has been phenomenal growth, just incredible growth of the church in China, in Asia, in Eurasia, in Africa, in former Soviet Union, in South America. In fact, they indicated, and I don't know if this is a, an exaggeration or not, but they said the only place in the world where there is a decrease in Christianity is in America. And I think America is in decline, and I think that there are three reasons that this passage addresses. Uh, verse 2 is all we're going to get to today, and then we're going to cover several verses next week and finish the introduction. But the three areas are listed in your bulletins. There is moral compromise in the church, there is jurisdictional compromise, and uh, there is religious pluralism. And I want to look at all three because I think these three are what distinguish the church in America from the the church that is growing in those other uh, portions of the world. Take a look at the first phrase in verse 2. This sort of introduces the subject. It says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Uh, Now, you might miss the significance of that verse if you didn't understand the historical background, because on first blush, it seems as if Jehoiakim has taken exile right along with Daniel and his friends. Now, I'm going to be challenging that in a moment, but even if that interpretation were true, this verse still points to the moral compromise and God's judgment that came upon the church. Uh, because it tolerated men like Jehoiakim as members of good standing. I don't think that's what it's talking about. Uh, And all conservative commentators point this out, that kings and chronicles uh, did not have Jehoiakim going into exile at this point, but he did come under the thumb of Nebuchadnezzar at that point. There are three exiles that we need to to understand. There was a first exile which occurred in this chapter, Another exile occurred seven years later when Jehoiakim and several more Jews uh, were uh, cast out. And then there was a third exile after that. But with that as a background, what does it mean when it says Jehoiakim was given into Nebuchadnezzar's hand? Well, I believe it was at that point that he became a vassal of Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar made a deal with him. He allowed Jehoiakim to stay on the throne if he agreed to certain terms, and those terms are symbolically sealed by the actions in the rest of the verse. And I want you to notice that those actions clearly relate to the church. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with, notice the word with, it's very significant, with some of the articles of the house of God. And so the carrying away of the articles was part of God's judgment. They were given into the hand, of, Jehoiak, uh, of, of Nebuchadnezzar, right along with Jehoiakim. And so there's a parallelism there. And then it goes on to say, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. And so there is uh, the house of um, a Marduk and there's a house of God that are contrasted. And in some way, it came into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. First part of the verse deals with who enforces the terms that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to take place in the church. And the rest of the verse deals with the nature of those compromises, which we're going to be uh, taking a look at. And if you want to study this out further, uh, Jeremiah 25 through 29 are excellent chapters to read. I've listed a couple of other chapters under point A. But those chapters very clearly speak about moral compromise, jurisdictional compromise, and the uh, religious pluralism that's hinted at in these verses. Now, Jeremiah ties together Jehoiakim's being given into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, being his vassal and agreeing to terms with the moral compromise that had already occurred in the church. And it occurred to an even greater degree in the next year because over and over again, Jeremiah talks about the fourth year of Jehoiakim being a key year. Uh, the first three years were distinguished from what happens after that third year when uh, this um, uh, th- this uh, first clause takes place. And if you look at those chapters, you can see that the moral compromise came about because the church was unwilling to hold uh, the uh, leaders accountable to God's word unwilling to uh, preach. In fact, many of the people who initially began to preach were either killed or were scared into silence. Uh, and uh, it was sort of a situation like King James. Remember in England, King James didn't like the fact that these preachers were preaching against Sabbath-breaking because he was a Sabbath-breaker, and he made a declaration that people were allowed to play sports on, on the Sabbath. And he said every church had to read those declarations. And it was a similar situation here. The church leaders began to only preach on topics that were safe because any any sermon against the sin that the king was engaged in would have been an offense to him. And certainly, the king was not placed under discipline. Jeremiah, you look at those chapters, he blasts the prophets and the priests for failing to take their duty of preaching against sin. And he symbolizes their moral slide as likening them to rotten figs fit to be cast out. Now I'm going to pick up on the solution to this problem in the second half of the sermon, but right here I just want to point out that if Satan can bring sin into the church or make the church overlook sin, he can neutralize the church. Holiness is absolutely critical to outreach. If we have an aching in the church then we will be powerless like Israel was. If we have murmuring and grumbling and complaining like the powerless wilderness generation grumbled and complained, it will affect our power in outreach. Hebrews says, if we allow bitterness, a root of bitterness to spring up, by it many will be defiled. And so in effect, God is saying to Judah, if you want to live like the pagans, then I'll put you under the boot of the pagans and you will receive (coughs) discipline at my hand. If you're not willing to discipline... I will discipline you. Verse 2 not only implies a moral compromise, uh, but it also very explicitly talks about a jurisdictional compromise. The whole purpose for taking those uh, articles out of the temple and putting them into the house of Marduk was to declare the jurisdiction of the Babylonian state over the Old Testament church. Kyle, for example, in his commentary says... This was a sign and pledge. So it was not only a sign on the part of Babylon, but it was a pledge on the part of the rulers of Judah. It was a sign and pledge of the subjugation of Judah and its God under the dominion of the kings and gods of Babylon. I want you to notice in the verse that uh, he was not plundering the temple. That happened seven years later when he takes everything out of there. Notice it says here, with some of the articles of the house of God. He doesn't take everything out there uh, and remove all of the articles. This was a token symbolic declaration on the part of Babylon of uh, his jurisdiction. And the historical background indicates that both Jehoiakim and the church leaders succumbed to that that, um, jurisdiction. Unlike the time of the Maccabees when they resisted with all of their might, unlike the times of Isaiah and other times, When the church would not give up its jurisdiction, they did not, they just went along with it. They relinquished jurisdiction and that's what is symbolized here. Here's the problem. Scripture indicates that church and state are separate governments. One is not over the other. We do not believe in a a church state like the ecclesiocracy in the Middle Ages where the church is over the state and runs the state. And we do not believe in a state church like an Anglicanism where the state is over the church. Did I get those right? We don't believe in either one, church state or state church. What we believe in, and I believe this is the way America was set up, is we believe in theocracy. In other words, separate jurisdictions for family, church, and state immediately responsible to God and accountable to God. And let me just give you a quick example to show how this worked. The governor of Nebraska does not have the authority to come into our home and spank my kids. The power of the rod has been given to parents. I, as a pastor, do not have the authority to come into your home and spank your kids. Now, there is an overlapping because the citizens of the family and the citizens of the church are also the citizens of the state, okay? There is an overlapping, but the jurisdictions are separate. And the family does not have the power of the sword. That's given to the state. We have to keep those things uh, separate. Now, Jehoiakim had done a lot of evils in the first three years, but he did not try to intrude into the church until the fourth year as far as I can tell from looking at the historical documents. And Jeremiah keeps alluding to that fourth year when jurisdictional compromise was happening. Now, there were attempts like this in the past. I mentioned Isaiah, King Isaiah. Pride got to his head and he thought that he could rule in the church just as he ruled in the state, but he was resisted by valiant men. And we'll be looking at that in a moment. Uh, In fact, uh, there were a couple of times he was one where they were actually physically thrown out of the temple. But uh, we'll be looking at that. Babylon begins the process of regulating the church, and when it was not resisted, Jehoiakim continues the practice. In fact, I believe Jehoiakim, at this point, is the chief agent of Babylon. Babylon allowed freedom of religion so long as there was an acknowledgement that the freedom came from the state, that it was granted. By the state, this whole verse speaks symbolically of Babylonian control over Jewish religion. And by having these tokens, it became a state-licensed religion. They were free to operate so long as they did not violate the whims of the emperor. Satan's strategy, I believe, has been exactly the same in every nation of the world. America is not an exception. He has always gone after the power centers, and uh, if he can uh, go after the, the, what they call the robes, you know, the robes of the, of the state uh, and uh, the robes of education and the robes of the church, uh, he's got it. He's got it all wrapped up. People came to America for precisely this problem. They wanted religious liberty. And even in the early days of America, there were attempts by England to regulate the churches, And, um, it really came to a head under King George when he sought to license all ministers in America. Now, he said he was giving them freedom of religion if they were willing to come under the authority of the state. And many people would say, hey, that sounds like a nice trade. We have total freedom to preach. We have total freedom from taxation if we'll only get a license. What's the big deal? But you know, the ministers of that time, they saw through that and they refused to get licensed. And the reason that they gave was if Caesar can force the churches to get a license, there is no freedom of religion by definition. And they can force us to do anything else when we have those licenses. And so taking the license was voluntarily giving up the jurisdiction of the church to the state. And I find a remarkable parallel between what happened in early America there and what has been happening in the area of incorporation at the state level and the 501c3 license at the federal level. There's a remarkable uh, parallel there, and that's one of the reasons why the session is studying this. Now, I should say that there are good men who differ on this subject. Rushduni and North, for example, uh, argue with each other on whether this really is a jurisdictional compromise. <clears throat> and it does make it confusing. But I want you to know the, stu- the session is studying this out. I believe they are not approaching this pragmatically. They do want to do that which is biblical, and however they come down on this question, I will respect their decision. But for myself, I found it interesting that until a few years ago, it was illegal in every state of the Union for churches to be incorporated. Why? Well, because people like Jefferson and Madison and others felt and explicitly said that this would be a violation of the Establishment Clause by allowing the federal government to uh, regulate churches. They felt it was a jurisdictional problem. Now, I'm not sure where our Supreme Court presently uh, stands on this issue, although I probably have a pretty good guess on that, but there have been numerous other court decisions that have made it very clear that because corporations are a creature of the state, that the state can control every level of a church's activities. And I think you can see why we're concerned and why we're studying through this particular uh, issue. Now, they, they, may be, uh, they may be wrong on that. It may not be a true principle because even under, under tyranny, they can do that to you whether you're incorporated or not incorporated. We still have to figure out is it biblical? We can't just be run by pragmatism that this is the best way to to avoid uh, state control. But uh, this is something that is of concern. Let me read to you one account of how Patrick Henry came to the place where he insisted that the licensing of ministers was a total act of tyranny on the part of government and it had to be resisted. And I think this will help to explain why uh, church incorporation was such an abhorrent thing in every state of the Union. In fact, it's still illegal In uh, Patrick Henry's home state, Virginia. Here's how the account reads In March of 1775, Patrick Henry was riding through the small town of Culpeper, Virginia. As he rode into the town square, he was completely shocked by what he witnessed. There, in the middle of the town square, was a man tied to a whipping post, his back laid bare, with bones exposed. He had been scourged mercilessly with whips laced with metal. When they stopped beating him, Patrick Henry could plainly see the bones of his ribcage. He turned to ask someone in the crowd, "'What has the man done to deserve such a beating as this?' The reply given him was that the man being scourged was a minister. He was one of 12 ministers locked in jail because they refused to take the king's license to preach the gospel. The governor was under orders from King George to compel all preachers to take the license. While being tried, without benefit of a jury— The minister stated, I will never submit to taking your license. I am controlled by the Holy Spirit and authorized by God Almighty and will not allow you to control me by a license no matter what you do to me. Three days later, he was scourged to death, and such was the fate of the other ministers as well. This was the incident that sparked Patrick Henry to write the famous words, which later became the rallying cry of the American Revolution. What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to purchase at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. They clearly saw that a blurring of the distinctions between the jurisdictions of church and state would be destructive to the church, would be destructive. They felt it had to uh, be separated. And that's one of the reasons they wrote the Establishment Clause. The more I study this issue, the more convinced I am that this is one of Satan's strategies for neutralizing the church. I have talked to pastors who have said to my face they would not preach on certain subjects because it would mean they would get their 501c3 status removed. Now, whether they're right or wrong in the legalities or whether this is a principal issue uh, or not, it is very clear to me that the camel of government has gotten its head into the ecclesiastical tent. You know, in China, the legal churches are impotent. It is the non-licensed churches that are thriving. And the same is true in almost every other country. The neutralizing of the church through jurisdictional compromise. Now, of course, the ultimate purpose for state control was to promote religious pluralism. And religious pluralism is the belief that it is wrong to be dogmatic. Dogmatism is heresy for them, but it's wrong to be dogmatic about world views and religious ideas and absolutes, tolerance, diversity. There's all kinds of other politically correct words that are the watchwords of the pluralist. Doug Gruthwitz, in his excellent book on the New Age Movement, defines pluralism as, quote, a diversity of religions, worldviews, and ideologies existing at one time in the same society. And I think this is so vividly portrayed in the rest of verse 2. The articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. (laughs) Babylon was politically correct when it came to embracing all religions, all worldviews, all ideologies, so long as they came under the same roof. every idol in the empire was represented in the temple of Marduk, which was the god of Nebuchadnezzar, and it was a licensing of all of those religions around the world. And really, Greece and Rome later on were no different. They gave freedom of religion to everybody so long as it was a licensed religion, and it came under the pantheon. Religious pluralism is rife in America. It is rife. Abortion is legal because, quote, you cannot impose your morality on someone else who has a different set of moral standards, unquote. Gary, DeMor, uh, Gary DeMar had this to say about religious pluralism. The only view that is not tolerated is the view that does not tolerate all views. Uh, religious pluralism was considered a heresy in early America, uh, Only Christianity had the sanction of law, and other religions were tolerated so long as they did not violate the fundamental laws that govern civil polity that came from the Bible. They were tolerated, but Christianity was the only religion that had the sanction of law. And yet, ironically today, we have evangelicals of all stripes who are arguing that we must be promoting religious pluralism in the political arena because it's our only hope of having freedom of ourselves. It's our only way that we're going to avoid persecution. Now, the odd thing about it, you read history and you will find time after time, religious pluralism has been the very vehicle by which Christians are persecuted. And the reason for it is pagans know intuitively that Christianity is not inclusive. If you were back in Babylon, back in those days, here's the kind of conflict that would come up and why you would be considered to be such a threat to their society. You might want laws passed against child sacrifice, but that violates the religious liberty of the Baal worshiper. That's so intolerant. You might want laws passed against child uh, prostitution, but that would violate the law of the religion of Astarte. And you could go on and on. You know, I have been reading through some of the writings of um, Ralph Reed. And this guy who is promoting religious pluralism, on the other hand, and trying to uphold some of the principles of scripture, on the other hand, is so full of contradictions. Because, for example, in homosexuality, he wants to say homosexuality is bad, but because he's a religious pluralist, He has to talk about the freedom and the rights and all of those types of things for homosexuals, and he talks out of two sides of his mouth. And we've got to be convinced Jesus Christ is not just another idol who is housed under the temple of Marduk in Babylon. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that's heresy to the religious pluralist because it's intolerant, it's too dogmatic. Jesus said to Pilate, you could have no authority unless it was given to you by the Father. That's that's so intolerant. And yet that is exactly what Christ calls us to do. Now, here's the question I want to ask of you this morning. Is religious pluralism in the church? We know it's in society. I've just defined it for you, and even Christians have gotten involved in religious pluralism in the political arena, but have we at least protected the church? Or has the church been neutralized? Well, let me suggest to you that the church has been neutralized because it is rife with political pluralism. Let me give you three examples, and I hope that you will discuss some other examples in the home groups tonight. But the the first example is that there are many churches throughout America who allow Freemasons to be members and even to be elders and pastors in their churches. And the irony is that Freemasonry is uh, religious pluralism par excellence. It really is. Let me give you a couple of quotes. T.S. Webb, a Masonic leader, said in the Masonic Monitor, so broad is the religion of Masonry. And I should just stop there because there are a lot of Masons, uh, evangelical Masons who say, oh, it's not a religion, it's just a social club but there's a lot of literature that's uh, published by leading Masons who call it a religion. So broad is the religion of Masonry, and so carefully are all the sectarian tenets excluded from the system that the Christian, the Jew, and the Mohammedan, and all their numberless sects and divisions may and do harmoniously combine in its moral and intellectual work with the Buddhist, the Parsi, the Confucian, and the worshiper of deity under every form. That is religious pluralism. That is tolerating what Jesus Christ would not tolerate. The Masonic burial ritual from McCoy's Masonic burial services says this about a departed Mason. And by the way, this is true no matter what religious background they come from. It says, "...as we mourn the departure of a brother beloved from the circle of our fraternity, may we trust that he hath entered into a higher brotherhood to engage in nobler duties and in heavenly work to find rest and earthly labor and refreshment from earthly care. May thy peace abide with us to keep us from all evil, make us grateful for present benefits, and crown us with immortal life and honor. And yet you have evangelicals who are a part of this. Another leading mason said, There is no place in my religious faith for a narrow sectarianism that excludes those who do not happen to see God as I see Him, nor for the kind of religious bigotry that blinds me to the good and precious in other people's faiths. I'd like to see what is the good and the precious in Baal worship. But the good and precious in other people's faiths. I am grateful for a faith that enables me to embrace all men who believe in God, regardless of their clime, creed, or color. Let me tell you, religious pluralism is such a part of our society that it has gripped the churches itself. It has gripped so many churches that there are PCA pastors even. I mean, PCA has a reputation for being really strict with the word. There are PCA pastors even who will not preach a sermon against masonry because they don't want to offend the mason. Well, let me tell you, my intention is not to offend masons. My intention is to show you these are things that neutralize the church and make it powerless because it offends God. It's God's offense that we ought to be concerned about. Let me give you another example. Pluralism has crept into the church in the area of counseling, big time. Dr. Paul C. Witts, professor of psychology at New York University, has called psychology, quote, the religion of humanism. And he has written to show how antithetical psychology and psychiatry is to the Christian faith. I was trained in that. And I saw it right on the surface of it, and yet how many pastors have taken all of their counseling from the various psychological worldviews, which are religious worldviews, and implemented it into their their counseling. That is religious pluralism. And let me tell you, there is a lot of religious pluralism being preached and being taught over KGBI. Minerth-Meyer Clinic is heretical. It is rank. And those of you who are listening to that, I want you to realize that you are being impacted by religious pluralism when you buy into that stuff. And I know some of you listen to it. I want to be clear. This is religious pluralism. And if I had time, I could go through and show how, how we handle church growth and management. We take worldly ideas that have neutralized the church and Christians need to wake up and realize what is at stake in Israel. It started off by being friendly and saying, we want to tolerate all religious views. And what ended up all the time is that the Christians got persecuted and the Christians got killed because the pagans know intuitively Christ is not inclusive and we need to wake up to that as well. And so there are three main areas in which the church has been neutralized. Moral compromise, jurisdictional compromise, and religious pluralism. Let's uh, end here by uh, just quickly taking a look at what the remedies are and how we can learn from our mistakes. First of all, we have got to reinstitute discipline into the church in America. True church discipline is almost non-existent in America, you can go from church to church, and if there happens to be a church that disciplines, he can just walk down the, down the sidewalk and join another church, and it's no skin off his nose. People do not honor discipline. They do not look to that. Here, God didn't say it's all Jehoiakim's fault, and so he's the only one who's going to be judged. He judges Judah, because he re- expected the church to be doing something about it. And I want you to turn with me to Second Chronicles 26, 16 through 21, for an example of a church that was willing to step, yes, even on a king's toes. Uh, there are politicians out there who are professing believers who believe in abortion, and their church has not so much as spoken to them, let alone disciplined them. I talked to the church leadership of one church and asked them, How in the world can you allow a doctor who performs abortion to be an elder in your congregation? They didn't want to rock the boat, didn't want to talk about it. Now this is a refreshing contrast. Second Chronicles twenty-six, and it talks about Isaiah. Isaiah was a good, good king for a long time, but he allowed pride to get to his head, and he thought he had authority to enter into the church and uh uh Govern governed the church just like he governed the state. Second Chronicles 26, let's, let's begin reading at verse 16. <clears throat> but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him were eighty priests of the Lord who were valiant men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Isaiah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Then Isaiah became furious, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Then Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. You know, to be cut off from the house of God back in the olden days, used to be considered the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Paul said you were being handed over to Satan. Yet there are so many people who could care less about the protective canopy of church membership. They feel it's just fine to be out on your own. And yet scripture indicates discipline is part of the character building, part of the discipling of his people. And it is essential for the church. It is essential. In the uh, book of Revelation, Revelations 2 through 3, he judges, uh, threatens to judge some of these churches, not because they were doing the evils, but because they allowed people in their church who were doing those evils. I have this against you because there are those who do this and that. He says, I have this against you because you allow Jezebel to teach. And so it's not enough to say, oh, well, we don't do it. God says, I want purity in the church. And if there is not purity, there will be a powerlessness. And of course, remember that self-discipline, sitting under the preaching of the word, is the most important part of discipline. Where you're saying, yes, Lord, show me what I should do, and I will do it. That's the bulk of it. But we need to be willing to go on from there as well. Secondly, we must resist state control of Christian faith. Daniel did it in verse 8. He did it again in Daniel 6 where he ended up in the lion's den. Now, I should give a word of caution here because there are some people who are always looking for a fight. They want to get in the middle of the fray. And I don't think Daniel calls for that. In fact, Daniel tries to avoid conflict as much as he can. I think he's obeying what Paul talks about. As much as lies within you, seek to live peaceably with all men. <clears throat> and um, so he didn't, he didn't try to pick a fight uh you could just maybe look at it like this uh you um uh, pass an ordinance in in the city that says no public preaching in central park and all of a sudden pastors who have never preached outdoors in their lifetime are thronging to that park and they're preaching away you know almost looking for a fight now if there were people we need to stand by the people who were the 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 park preachers but i don't think that's exactly what uh, daniel's getting at daniel did open up his windows for all to see why he was praying. But you know, the reason he did that, it says, as was his custom. If he had closed his windows and prayed, everybody would have thought he had stopped praying. So we're not looking for a fight, but if your religious views are being challenged, and especially the jurisdiction of the church like Isaiah did, we must resist and stand our ground. Another thing that we need to keep in mind is that judgments are for the good of the church. And I'm sure the Lord will strengthen the church if He brings persecution uh, in the future. If you read Jeremiah 24, you'll see it was actually the good figs that were sent into exile. The bad figs were left in the land. That was the analogy that he was using. And he said it was for the good of those people. Everyone whom the Lord loves, He chastens. It's because the Lord loved those people He allowed that persecution. And uh, down through history, persecution has served to strengthen and purify the church. And I think it makes good sense because hypocrites don't want to be in the church when Christians are under persecution. So the hypocrites leave, the false professors, they all leave. And what is left is a strong, vibrant church that is committed to holiness. And I think that is what has given the church such vibrancy and power in China, in Africa, And in some of those other places where the church is just phenomenally growing because there's an integrity about their life. Fourthly, be confident that God will preserve those things that are important. It's not going to be the end of the world if we get thrown into exile, as it were. You know, it looked like the most devastating thing that could happen when all those temple vessels were carried into Babylon, but later on in the book... And when you compare it with Ezra and Nehemiah, you realize this was God's means of protecting those vessels before the final uh, burning of the temple and everything happened. This was God's means of protecting. God did the same thing with the people. He placed them in just the right places in Babylon where they could have the maximum impact for promoting His kingdom. And so we can have confidence. God's in control, and He will preserve those things that are important. And then fifthly, Do not silence the preaching of men like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. You may not be comfortable with my preaching at all times, but if you can see it in the scriptures, you need to be willing to be admonished. And let me tell you, if the church is willing to take these five steps, it will be a long ways toward having a long haul effect in America. Theocracy is under attack in the church in America. Not just in politics, but in the church because men do not want to submit to God's regulations. They want to take the easy way out, the pragmatic way out, the way that will be the uh, least discomfort for them. And yet we must be men of principle in our families, in the church, and in the state, wherever God has placed us. May we be so. Amen. Let's pray. This is the end of side one. Please fast forward the tape and turn it over for side two. Uh, cast aside all moral compromise and jurisdictional compromise and all religious pluralism, that we might be faithful to You, loving You with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. Father, I pray that we would have an impact upon our society, a powerful impact. We want to glorify You. We want to live out our lives in Your honor. And so I pray that You would be with us and encourage us, that You would Build up your people and strengthen them that you would meet all of the needs that we have, that we might give ourselves entirely to you. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.